All right. Well, good morning, church. It is so good to be with you. Uh, happy Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving just passed. Um, and praise the Lord. Thank God for Pastor Jim's message last week talking about how the Lord is our provider. He is Jehovah Jireh because if you've been in the stores uh, leading up to Thanksgiving, um, it is a little bit like a mix of the Hunger Games and Mad Max all mixed together in one. <laughs> it's just a little terrifying. Um, so praise the Lord that he's our provider. Uh, I hope that you had a wonderful Thanksgiving and we're so glad that you're joining us here this morning. Um, before we get started, uh, I would like to just pray and, and thank the Lord for um, the gifts and offerings, uh, the tithes and offerings that come in. What a joy it is that we get to partner with the Lord in our finances. And what a pleasure it is to, to serve the Lord in our finances. One of my favorite stories is uh, from the Bible is when Jesus his interaction with the widow who puts in two mites into the offering. Um, that would have been a love offering. And, uh, you know, the Bible uh, talks about how that was all she had, her whole livelihood. Uh, the Bible, depending on your translation, might say two pennies. Um, in By today's equation, uh, including uh, inflation, that uh, two mites would have been worth between $2.50 to $5. Uh, I don't know about you, but that's probably not enough to make a Thanksgiving meal out of. But the Lord highlights her for all eternity in saying that out of all the others who gave out of their abundance, she gave out of her need. Uh, and you know why? Because her need was truly the Lord. Jesus was what she needed. And so I want to encourage you, hey, where are you uh, with the Lord? Maybe it's been on your heart to give, and that's been something you've wrestled with. Maybe, maybe that you feel like there's a, a next step to take in the grace of giving. One of my favorite things uh, that Pastor Jim has said in the past is, how um, we don't want you to give uh, out of a place of fear or worry. We want you to give out of a place of grace, right? So as the Lord puts it on your heart, we want to encourage you to not give to the church, but to give to the Lord because the Lord is what we need. Amen? So let's just pray here a moment. Father, thank you that we get to give to your kingdom. Father, we get to sow into your purposes and your plans, Father, for the Church of Grace and Peace and for your plans and your purposes in, in New Jersey and Ocean County and all across the world as we give what little is in our hands becomes multiplied in your hands. And so, Father, we thank you, God, that we get to be part of what you're doing in our finances. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Well, church, this morning we're talking about, uh, we're still on this subject, the known by his name. We're talking about the names of God. And today, the name of God that we're focused on is Jehovah Sidkinu. I am sure I am not pronouncing that correctly. <laughs> but what it translates to is the Lord our righteousness. Jehovah Sidkinu, the Lord our righteousness. And uh, this comes from, this name is kind of revealed in the book of Jeremiah. Uh, it's in Jeremiah 23, verses uh, 5 to 6. I'm just going to read them here for you. Uh, I love how this kind of declares the picture of Jesus as it comes up. Read this with me. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called, and hear this, the Lord our righteousness. Right? Now, depending on your translations, uh, that might be all capitalized. That is for me. Um, 
I love that. The Lord our righteousness. This is one of his names that he is revealing to uh, the nation of Israel. And right up until this point, you know, Jeremiah, I don't know if you've read the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah has some pretty, pretty rough moments. <laughs> Jeremiah, uh, there's lots of, you know, Jeremiah is constantly calling the nation of Israel back to God. And so many times the nation of Israel is just turning to other things. And it uses some pretty intense language talking about how the nation of Israel has turned from God to all these other gods and has turned to, to paganism and all these things. And God is constantly trying to call Israel back. And, and he's using Jeremiah as his mouthpiece to do that. Now, when we look at the Old Testament, when we look at the Hebrew language, there's, there's multiple names or multiple words for righteousness, right? And I, I can't get into all of them, uh, but few, uh, three big ones that stick out, uh, and I'm not going to try and pronounce them in Hebrew, <laughs> because again, it's a miracle that I was able to pronounce Jehovah Sidkinu, uh, which is, is a, a beautiful name of God. But we have uh, three kind of definitions for righteousness that we see in uh, the Old Testament that are all translated as righteousness or justice or justness. Um, so the first is there is righteousness of character, right? Uh, this kind of describes the picture of Noah in the Old Testament, right? That he was righteous among his generation, right? That God recognized that he was righteous among his generation. Um, this was a righteousness of morality, right? He lived different from his generation. The generation we know uh, in, the, in, in Genesis was perverse, right? But Noah wasn't like them. God recognized that, even though there was no law. The law hadn't been given yet, right? The Old Testament law that we, we know of uh, later on, even as uh, the nation of Israel is established, that has not yet been given, right? Uh, people have described this as the law of conscience, right? Noah followed his conscience. He was walking as morally as possible, right, in a perverse generation. God recognized that, and that was the reason why God preserved Noah. You could also say that the moral righteousness is a preserving righteousness when you look at it from like an Old Testament perspective. Uh, and this is going to be very important as we get into this. Uh, the second type of righteousness is a legal righteousness. Uh, this is the same word that's used uh, when it says that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. It was uh, Abraham believed God and there was a legal transaction. His belief was exchanged for legal righteousness in the perspective of heaven, right? That his belief in God's promises was accounted to him as righteousness. It was a legal transaction from a heavenly perspective. And then the third one I want to talk about is righteousness as it comes to weights and measures, right? Because there's, uh, there's, the Bible does talk about like how Israel uh, in its, its kind of decline was using false weights and measures, right? Where um, they were the only way of exchange, they didn't have dollars, they didn't have, you know, even coins could be forged or they didn't have the right weights for values of gold. So they'd use weights to try and get precise measurements for exchange. The only issue is people would say they have a, you know, a, uh, you know for example, a, a weight worth one shekel and it was really worth a shekel and a half or two shekels, right? So they would kind of uh, uh, cheap each other out of an authentic exchange, right? So these are the three things I want to talk about. These are three pictures of righteousness, right, that the Bible talks about in the Old Testament. And this was, this was what um, was expected. You know, the Bible talks a lot about how in the Old Testament there was a striving that people ought to live righteously. God is constantly calling his people to live righteously, to do righteously. Um, and Jesus kind of sums this up, kind of this picture of where Israel was at as he's in his ministry, Matthew 5.20. Uh, he is 
he kind of makes the connection here between salvation and righteousness, that there is meant to be righteousness. We're supposed to live in righteousness because that is what is going to attribute to salvation, not just national salvation, nation being preserved, but to like personal salvation, right? And it's a little bit hard because like this language here is, look what Jesus uses. It's a little, it's scary. Look what he says. He says, for I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, let's just stop right there. I don't know about you, but that can kind of seem really intimidating, right? If you were there following Jesus and he was kind of sharing this, this would be a terrifying concept because the Pharisees and the scribes were considered like the most righteous, right? They were, uh, you know, everybody else was like on level like, like one or two of God's righteousness and they were like level 10 righteousness, right? Like they were up there. They spent their entire lives studying uh, the word of God, memorizing uh, the Old Testament. Like they, this was their world, right? They were considered the most righteous. And so when Jesus is talking about that their righteousness needs to exceed them, well, that kind of puts everybody in a tough category, right? Like if even the Pharisees can't get to heaven and we need to exceed the Pharisees, how are we going to do this? Right? How can I be more righteous than these people? How can I be moral enough? How can I do all the, the things by the law right enough? How can I you know, be just enough in order to get to heaven? Right? This, is a, this is a terrifying perspective if we didn't know who Jesus was and what he was about to do. Amen? Jesus compares righteousness with salvation here. And it's very important because he's pointing out specifically the legal righteousness of the Pharisees. Because we know that he talks all the time about how the Pharisees were as, you know, um, whitewashed tombs, right? He talks about that they were, you know, like a cup that's been washed on the outside and its inside's been left dirty. Like, he has all kinds of language to talk about their moral standing, but their righteousness and their legal standing is what he's kind of talking about here. Um, and this is like this, there's this... Um, plural description in that, right? It's not just the Pharisees in that time. It's all Pharisees that have ever been, right? The Pharisees and scribes isn't just talking about those that are alive at the moment, but those that have always been. This is scary. You know, let's be honest here for a moment. Have you ever had a moment where you felt like you just didn't measure up to somebody else, right? Like other people were just more godly than you? I think that we can all feel that at some point, especially, you know, the truth is we all fall short of the glory of God. And so we can all kind of, even coming to a church or, or being uh, in, a, in a body of Christ, we can feel like, oh, like, oh, like they're really spiritual over there. They're really godly over there. And I love that, you know, the encouraging part of that is that, listen, it brings us all back. Nobody is godly enough. Nobody is good enough. The Pharisees weren't good enough. All our good works aren't good enough. You know, the Bible describes that all our good works are as filthy rags, right, in comparison we, we, we can't be good enough. And up until this point, all throughout Scripture, there is this desire to try and attain godliness. You know, and the truth is, all religions, up and until the death and resurrection of Christ, all the pursuit is that we, as, as fickle and fallen human beings, ought to attain godliness, attain um, enlightenment, right? Attain a higher level of being, right? There's always this pursuit to become better when the gospel is that Jesus is everything we can't be. Uh, and we're going to kind of dive into this. Jeremiah 18.12 kind of depicts the natural human estate of hopelessness when it comes to how, to, how do we be righteous. Jeremiah uh, in the chapter 18 is, is 
telling the nation of Israel once again to repent, right? Because uh, he describes it like that the, the nation of Israel is clay in a potter's hands. And the potter can mold it and shape it and move it um, any way he wants. He can raise it up, he can push it down. And Jeremiah is telling the nation of Israel, you're, you're conducting yourselves wickedly. Repent and turn back to God, right? Walk in godliness. And the nation of Israel, this is the response. Hear this. They said, uh, Jeremiah eighteen twelve, and they said, that is hopeless. So we will walk according to our own plans and we will everyone obey the deceits of his evil heart. Oh, I'm sorry, dictates of his evil heart. Everyone will obey the dictates of his evil heart. Isn't that like the, isn't that the ultimate picture of mankind's need for a savior, right? Even, even when we're talking about moral righteousness, which is like kind of the picture there, God's calling them to a, a new moral righteous repentance, um, brokenness over their sin, a return to morality, right? A return to God on a moral level, right? That their, their, their minds are fixed on him. They can't even do that. And so instead of just saying we can't do it or we're not good enough, the response is we're going to follow the dictates of our evil heart, right? This is the reality of all humanity. At the end of the day, an unredeemed world is going to seek after the lust of the flesh, right? Um, the heart is above all else wicked, the word says. And the world is trying to constantly define righteousness without God. And the truth is, <laughs> you know, um, so much of when you look at like politics and um, like even like, like systems of governance is mankind trying to produce a righteous world without a righteous God, right? Like you look at socialism. Socialism on paper is fantastic. Everybody's equal. Everybody cares for one another, right? Same thing with communism, which is just based more on a financial level. This is a, this is an, this is a, a search for righteousness, but without God. We remove God from the equation. Mankind can produce righteousness on his own right? And if you're not a student of history, that generally has not worked out well. Um, student of history, that has never worked out well, right? Uh, even, even when we come to like, uh, you know, republics or democracies or all these things, it's mankind trying to seek out a way of life that is righteous, but not from a godly perspective. And so I think in our human nature, we fall into this place of feeling either one of two things. We are too afraid and we feel like we can't do it. So we, like the nation of Israel, respond, I can't do it. It's hopeless. I'm going to just do what I can, what feels good, what's in my heart right now, and we'll, just, we'll, we'll figure out the rest when we get there. Or we go the other, other direction. And I think that we can get this way as a church where we run in the other direction. We say, well, I'm going to do it all. I'm going to be righteous. I, I, I'm gonna, I know God wants me to be righteous, so I'm going to do all the things that are righteous. I'm going to live righteous and be righteous, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do the moral things. I'm going to, like, the, what the Word says to two, I'm going to do all the things I can do, and I'm going to attain righteousness, right? And that's kind of, you know, that is, I think that, and I think that that's just human nature to pursue that. But that's not what God calls us to do, um, 2 Corinthians 5.21 sums up so much where we need to go with the Lord. But to come back to the core of the picture of what it needs to be about. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. You know, we get into this whole thing. Can I tell you that even as I was studying for this, just a real moment between you and I, even as I was studying for this, I was working on this, there is a part that is so difficult to grasp this reality, that he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And it's difficult because I think growing up in the church, I can grasp the concept that Jesus paid for my sins on the cross. I, and I, I, can, I can live thankful for that. I have a hard time grasping the, the extent of the exchange where it's not just that he took my sin, but now I have become his righteousness. And I think that we don't grasp it because it's so unfair. It's so unfair. And we live in a world that is consumed with the idea of fairness, right? Everybody wants things to be fair. Everywhere I go, it's, it's all about fairness. Everything wants to be fair, 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 right? And we can't even define fairness because the truth is we don't have righteous weights and measures in our own minds of what fair is. But I feel like it's so, and, and it is, right? It's so, there's nothing I could do to earn Christ's exchange for me, right? There's nothing I can do to earn his replacement for me on the cross, right? The cross was what I deserved, and, and hell thereafter is what I rightly deserve. Justice and righteousness would dictate that in my fallen human state, I deserve that. And the most unjust thing of all is that he who should know no sin should go and pay my price on my behalf, and not just my price, but that I get to be his righteousness. This is an exchange so complete, so full, so encompassing, that it goes beyond, you know, up until this point, all the concept of righteousness was about doing, right? It was about doing righteousness on a moral level, about doing what was right when it came to a legal sense. It was about doing the right things when it came to weights and measures and, and us being um, honest, right? It goes from the doing side of righteousness to the being side of righteousness. It's an exchange so complete that Jesus being righteous exchanged our place and now we are his righteousness in Christ Jesus. It's not fair. But the language of there, you have to understand, that I, I, I brought the weights and measures for this reason, because on the scales of heaven, right, in our sin, in our humanity, we can't attain righteousness. We're down here, God's righteousness, uh, or should I say God's righteousness down here, we're up here, we don't weigh enough to surpass. We are all our good deeds are as filthy rags. We can't attain it. But the exchange is so complete that with Jesus making us his righteousness, we, even when we mess up, even when we do it all wrong, even when we make all the wrong um, choices, we can't undo the righteousness of Christ. We can't make Jesus unrighteous. And because we are now his righteousness, the exchange is that we get all the benefit of being in communion and covenant and relationship with the living God because we are now righteous. And this is hard. I think this is hard for the American church because so much of what we do uh, is about doing, right? So much of uh, the, the American church, I think, is so focused on doing the right things. And don't get me wrong, we ought to do the right things, right? Um, and, and the reality is the wording of the, the scripture describes that we ought to, you know, we are 
we, the Lord draws us to him by his goodness that we now walk this out in love, right? We're in the law of love that we, because we love the Lord, because we love one another, which are the Lord's commandments, we can do all the right things. But sometimes the, the world gets so caught up. In fact, one of the favorite verses that are spoken um, in the modern church today, one of the most quoted verses is, um, I, I just read it here, is, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm finding it here on my notes. Uh, faith without works is dead. Interesting, right? The most commonly used verse in the church today is faith without works is dead, which is true. Listen, that's scripture. There's truth in that. If we have faith in Jesus, we ought to follow that up in how we live and what we do. But I think that we can get so caught up in thinking, I, in order to have faith, I must do works. Right? And Paul even tackles that in the whole book of Romans. And he even wraps it up with this. And, and I, I mentioned this in the beginning, but I want to come back to it. Romans 4.3. Paul is recapping the concept of righteousness all through uh, Romans 3 and Romans 4. And here he kind of, kind of encapsulates it all because the, the church in Romans was trying to attain a level of righteousness just like I think the American church does, just like I do trying to attain some level of favor with God by doing all good things. He talks about this when it comes to works. Here's what it says in Romans 4, 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He ties that right back into how we need only to believe in Jesus. So how do, we, how do we accept, how do we embrace this name that God has revealed of himself? Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. It's not by us trying to go and do it all. And that's such, can I tell you, the, the addiction of the church, the addiction of the American way of life is to do. We are doers by nature. We want to do all the things. If there's a, a problem, we want to do something about it. If there's a, a hurt, we want to do something to fix it, right? Um, if there's injustice, we want to do something to let the world know that there's injustice. But this comes back to us. We believe in Jesus. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Here's a question. Is there any place in your life where you have tried to, out of your own strength, out of your own striving, replace Jesus with works? Or maybe you feel like you are good enough, or what you do is good enough. Therefore, maybe you feel like you've lost that place of just it being about Jesus. One of my favorite things, you know, we were away on our, our youth retreat not too long ago, and the title that we uh, spoke about was Anchor. And we talked about Jesus is our anchor. And you know, the truth is that there are so many things that we can rely on and grasp to and try and hold on to um, that are false anchors in life, trying for us to strive to be good enough for God, to attain God's approval, to, to get God to like us by doing all the things, by trying to live righteous enough, is a false anchor. It's with a noble heart, but it's a false anchor. Our only anchor in life is Jesus. And because of Jesus, we have favor with God. We don't have to do anything to earn it. And it's unfair, and it's absolutely right. If you're sitting there saying, Pastor Nate, you don't understand. I, I want God to like me for all the things I do. I want to gain his favor from working hard and making things, um, you know, right with God. And that's all. It's noble. 
But what it comes back to, if we don't have faith, simple, childlike faith in Jesus, then we are not going to be the righteousness of Christ. But good news is, in Jesus, in that simple childlike faith, saying, Lord, I believe you in my heart. I need you to live on the inside. I trust you to be my righteousness. I trust you to to have favor with me when I can't do it. That, that puts us in a different category. Then we've gone from doing to being. We are now the righteousness of Christ in Christ Jesus. I want to encourage you, take a step today. Where is there, where is there maybe unbelief? Maybe, maybe there's a place where you've messed up, you, 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 you feel like you've gone too far in the wrong direction. God could never forgive what's happened, or God could never, be, could never care for you or love you or, or, or like you the way you used to because something bad happened. Or maybe you feel like, maybe you just feel like it's been a while since you had a, a, a real conversation with God. Maybe it's been a while since you spent time with him in prayer or in his word. And you feel like, oh, it's hopeless. I'm too far gone. The Lord's your righteousness. You couldn't earn his, his righteousness. You're not going to lose it. Will you put your faith in Christ today and trust him to be everything you need? Church, I'm just going to pray for you now. And thank you for joining us. And, and I want to encourage you just let today be a day where you reconnect with your heavenly father who favors you so much that he exchanged his only son that he might have a relationship with you that you would be his son's righteousness and therefore partaker of every blessing therein. Heavenly father, thank you that we get the privilege of knowing you, of connecting with you, of, of, of not just reading about you in our word, but experiencing you daily. Thank you, Father, that we have the ability to come to you boldly because of Jesus. And thank you, Father, that we get to live in righteousness, not because of our works, but simply because of who you are. I pray, Father, that you would part your spirit upon us. And you would open our eyes, God, to have more faith in you and less striving for all the things we want to do. In the name of Jesus, amen. God bless you, church. Thank you for being with us. We love you.